Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is a special episode of the podcast. On October 7th, Tech Policy Press hosted a mini-conference called Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. While various solutions to problems at the intersection of social media and democracy are under consideration, from regulation to antitrust action, some experts are enthusiastic about the opportunity to create a new social media ecosystem that relies less on centrally managed platforms like Facebook and more on decentralized, interoperable services and components. The first discussion at the event took on the notion of middleware for content moderation and featured four panelists. First, Dr. Francis Fukuyama, Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Smogley Institute for International Studies, Mossbacher Director of FSI's Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, and Director of Stanford's Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy. Second, Dr. Natalie Marischal, a writer, researcher, and activist working at the intersection of internet policy and human rights advocacy, who is Senior Policy and Partnerships Manager at Ranking Digital Rights, a nonprofit research initiative housed at New America's Open Technology Institute. Third, Daphne Keller, who directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center and is a lecturer at Stanford Law School. And finally, Richard Reisman, an entrepreneur, investor, and writer, including at Tech Policy Press, where he has written about decentralizing social media. You'll hear my opening for the event and then the panel. Subscribe to the Tech Policy Press podcast via your favorite podcast service for additional sessions from the event, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at techpolicy.press. Now, let's get into the discussion. Um, I want to first uh, introduce Brian Jones, who is the co-founder of Tech Policy Press and its uh, chairman of its board, uh, to say a word of introduction uh, before we get going with today's entertainment. Brian. Thanks, Justin. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening to everyone joining today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy afternoons to join what I believe will be a fantastic set of conversations. Tech Policy Press is a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We publish opinion and analysis across a wide range of topics from privacy to national security, from identity to community, disinformation to the future of the internet, cybersecurity, AI, and human rights. These are obviously all important issues, and we believe that the entirety of this topic is a generational problem, one that we have to get right if we want democracy to survive into the second half of the 21st century and see humanity overcome the challenges that lay in front of us. Our goal is to include diverse and various viewpoints from experts ranging from academia, industry, and the government. Today is a great opportunity to bring all those groups together for an important conversation. So thank you to Justin, all of our fantastic speakers, and of course, to everyone here for being part of today's event. Back to you, Justin. Thank you, Brian. Um, so quickly, what are we here to discuss? This appears to be the topic of this event, especially uh, from the attention it's received in these last uh, few weeks as a result of the news cycle around the Facebook whistleblower. It's one of the most important issues of the moment, how we arrive at consensus, how we uh, sort out the problems of this uh, information ecosystem. Um, that is, you know, a kind of key problem that we're all facing together, a key concern for many. Um, but on a basic level, in some ways, the conversation we're having today 
is really about kind of advancing a conversation that's been taking place with some of these panelists that you're going to hear from. And in particular, was prompted by a working group at Stanford uh, that Professor Fukuyama was part of, and then a handful of entries that came from that in the Journal of Democracy, including some initial provocations from uh, Professor Fukuyama, uh, and then responses from some of the others. So we're going to hear uh, some, some great ideas today. We're going to hear some debate. These people don't all necessarily agree with one another, uh, but it'll be a civil discussion, I'm sure, um, because you know everybody here has the same common interest, which is to try to uh, make a better internet uh, and make the internet safe for democracy. Um, so Professor Fukuyama, who I, I believe everyone has a link to his bio on the Tech Policy Press uh, event page. In his essay this spring uh, in the journal Democracy titled Making the Internet Safer Democracy, uh, he wrote, there is nonetheless a great deal of confusion as to where the real threat to democracy lies. This confusion begins with the question of causality. Do the platforms simply reflect existing political and social conflicts, or are they actually the cause of such conflicts? The answer to that question will in turn be key to finding the appropriate remedies. So that's one of the places he started. Uh, he turned to the platforms and he said, uh, no democracy can rely on the good intentions of particular power holders. Numerous strands of modern democratic theory uphold the idea that political institutions need to check and limit arbitrary power regardless of who wields it. Um, so this week, we got a taste of what goes in, on inside Facebook. We had urged people to take a look at the whistleblower disclosures that were filed with the FC, uh, SEC. The names and exerted contents of some of the studies, um, really a, a company operating on a vast scale uh, with little oversight or transparency, engaged in uh, what could, could, and I'll be provocative here, could be summarized as unregulated social engineering. So we're going to talk about how and whether we should take apart the pieces. There are many people who believe a decentralized social media ecosystem that reduces the power of these platforms may be the solution. Some of you listening are proponents of that, some of you skeptics, some are here to uh, hear uh, these ideas and decide which side you might be on. But I think everyone that's part of this discussion today, I should hope at least, uh, is here for the same reason, which is to strengthen democracy uh, and to hopefully guard the liberties that this particular form of governance affords us. Um, so we certainly have the right people for this discussion today. Um, this segment of the discussion is going to be led by uh, Richard Reisman, Dick Reisman, who is a, a frequent contributor to Tech Policy Press and writes about these issues on his own blog. Um, so I want to welcome him. He's here. Um, and then I want to introduce our uh, first discussant who is going to lead us through some of the key thoughts and, and framing thoughts from his pieces in the journal of democracy, uh, both making the internet safe for democracy and solving for a mover, moving target. So, uh, Professor Fukuyama, thank you for joining us, and I'll put you in the spotlight. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Justin. Uh, so, uh, thanks uh, to Tech Policy Press for hosting this discussion. Uh, thanks to Daphne and Natalie for the comments that they've made already. I think that uh, we're going to have a, a rich discussion about this. So, let me just give a little background on the Working Group on Platform Scale at Stanford, which is part of a larger project on democracy and the internet that uh, we've been running for the last couple of years. This Working Group actually started out as the Stanford Working Group on Antitrust uh, related to the digital platforms. 
But as we started looking carefully at the uh, this set of issues, we decided that antitrust was really not the right lens with which to address what we saw to be the biggest problem that these big platforms, and by the way, by these big platforms, there's basically only three. It's, it's Google, Facebook, and Twitter. We're not talking about any other uh, companies. Uh, but the real problem that they posed was one uh, of political power. Antitrust law, as it's developed in the United States and, you know, honestly, in Europe as well, is really focused on economic harms, uh, exclusionary co uh, conduct or anti-competitive behavior that uh, creates uh, harms to consumers in terms of the products they see. Uh, and as we see now, you know, harms to privacy uh, and the like. Uh, but they don't really address what I think many people have regarded as the central problem, which is the fact that these platforms basically are the main channels today for political speech. Uh, they've displaced the television networks, the legacy media, as the primary vehicles by which people communicate about political uh, issues. And in that respect, they're extraordinarily uh, powerful and they have a scale that rivals or possibly exceeds that of the three broadcast networks, over-the-air networks, uh, back in the 1950s or 60s. Uh, and it's really that uh, power that is at the center. And it was our feeling as we thought about it that antitrust law really does not address the major uh, harms that those platforms produce. So um, if you think about what the harms are, I mentioned the economic ones, there are social and privacy harms uh, because the business model of a company like Facebook is basically to grab as much of your personal data as possible and then to milk <laughs> every penny of, of revenue out of it that they, they can. Uh, but the political harms I think are the ones that have been of greatest concern uh, especially since the 2016 uh, election. Uh, and those really have to do with the platform's tremendous ability to disseminate uh, misinformation, conspiracy theories, um, uh, uncivil uh, you know, abuse uh, and the like uh, that many people have linked to the both to the polarization that I think is probably the single biggest uh, political challenge to American uh, democracy uh, right now, but also to a general deterioration of deliberation and, and, and civil democratic discourse. And uh, that's directly related to the business model of the platforms who do not have a responsibility for uh, improving the quality of democracy. They have a responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profits. And that's all often related to their ability to accelerate uh, information that is, you know, salacious and uh, clickable, but, uh, you know, not true uh, uh, and not in line with a kind of deliberative mode that you would want in a, uh, in a democratic uh, society. Uh, and so that was the basic problem. It was, a, it was a question of power. And in designing a response, it seems to me you want an institution you don't want to simply get Mark Zuckerberg, you know, to agree that, yes, we're going to keep anti-vax information off of uh, Facebook, uh, because what you want is a 
is an institutional solution. It shouldn't depend on the fact that Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey happens to be running these companies and they are kind of aligned with your social goals and they're willing to do the sorts of things that they're pressured to do by, uh, by activists because one of the things you have to think about in the future is if you've got a platform with this much power, uh, what if it's run by you know, uh, a Rupert Murdoch uh, at, at some future point that's going to use that platform power uh, for very different political ends? And so you want uh, a solution that's kind of neutral with regard to the actual owners and content you know, moderators that are currently uh, in power. Uh, and you want to essentially try to reduce that, you know, the power uh, of those people. We believe as a normative matter that a private corporation should not have this kind of authority over political speech. Uh, and that's for two reasons. One is just a normative reason that they are not built to be dedicated to the protection of democracy. They are, you know, devoted to their own economic self-interest. And secondly, uh, it's not clear that they've got the capacity to make the kinds of, you know, complex, nuanced political decisions to determine what's fake news, what's acceptable political speech, uh, what is not. Uh, they do perform this function in other areas. You know, they keep things off of the platforms having to do with child pornography, terrorist incitement, uh, and so forth that are relatively non-controversial and. I think actually everybody should be grateful that they do this, but when it comes to political speech, I think most people can think of instances in which their judgment has been very you know, questionable. And certainly given the polarization in this country, there's probably half of Americans that think that they've been doing uh, a terrible uh, job at this. Uh, so the solution really has to be one that's kind of neutral with regard to the owners and the actual people running these platforms, it really has to be an institutional solution that somehow reduces their uh, power. Now, the solution that we've come up with, we've labeled middleware. Basically, in a nutshell, what this uh, involves is the effort to outsource political content moderation away from the platforms uh, to a layer of competitive uh, companies that would tailor the, the moderation to the uh, desires of the actual users of the platforms. Because among other problems right now, uh, the platforms moderate content based on algorithms that are completely non-transparent and they're not user definable. They are trying to intuit from your browsing behavior what you would like to see, uh, but you can't tell them you know, that you don't wanna see a certain kind of content. And so the idea is to transfer the ability uh, to, in effect, filter or moderate your feed on the platform to another company that you could choose voluntarily or multiple companies uh, that would give you uh, the kind of content uh, uh, you want. The reason that we got uh, to this solution is that, in our view, the competing ideas for how to solve this problem don't really work. I mean, they may be good ideas at some level, but as a practical policy matter, uh, we didn't think that they would be appropriate. One option, you know, is the one I started with, which is to use existing antitrust laws to either break up the platforms, uh, which would certainly reduce their power, 
uh, or to use antitrust as a way of limiting their uh, ability to uh, behave in this manner. Uh, we don't feel that given the way the, those laws are written right now, that's, that's going to work. Uh, I don't think you can break up Facebook because I think the economies, network economies will mean that one of the successor baby Facebooks will soon occupy the position that Facebook holds uh, 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 right now. And in any event, you know, it's going to take 10 years and we don't have 10 years to uh, do a kind of AT&T style uh, breakup. Uh, so that uh, alternative, I think, is not, is not going to uh, work. Uh, a second idea that's out there is to mandate some form of data portability or interoperability uh, among the different uh, online platforms so that people would be able to leave, you know, potentially leave Facebook and move uh, somewhere else. This idea, I think, sounds good in the abstract, but I think as a practical matter, it's really not uh, workable. And that has to do just with a kind of technical issue that platforms are very heterogeneous. The most important data that they possess is not the data that you've given them about your email address and your phone number and your address uh, and your credit card. It's actually the metadata that you produce by interacting with the uh, platform. And there's some question as to actually who owns that uh, data. But if you think about how do you translate a like you know, on, on Twitter or Pinterest into uh, a Facebook-like, and how do you transfer, you know, the fact that you liked a certain speaker or something from one platform to another, given the heterogeneity of their, uh, the data that they uh, uh, make use of, it's, it's really not clear uh, how you would make that uh, uh, interoperable. And I would just point to medical data, where for the last 20 years, They've been trying to come up with portable medical records. And, you know, after a lot of investment and effort, they've not been able to do this. Uh, a third option is to enhance privacy protections. Daphne can say a lot more about this, but under Europe's GDPR, uh, in theory, you're not allowed to take data that you've gathered from, let's say, selling books and then use that to sell diapers. Uh, the way that uh, Amazon has done. And that's, uh, you know, a possible uh, approach. We don't have privacy laws, uh, comparable privacy laws, except at a state level in the United States. Uh, but again, there's problems with that because in a certain way, uh, that limitation might actually just lock in the advantage of the existing incumbents who are already sitting on a mountain of data and would primarily affect uh, uh, newer platforms that we're trying to uh, compete with them. So this is what's led us to this middleware idea, uh, the idea that you would have companies, smaller companies that would compete with each other uh, for the uh, uh, service of uh, filtering uh, content uh, according to the wishes of individual users. So for example, you could imagine a, a coalition of universities in the United States uh, funding uh, and backing a, an NGO that in effect would certify the academic credibility of websites uh, and then you know, mandate that students and faculty using their uh, servers uh, use that middleware provider uh, to give students you know, some idea of what websites are more 
uh, academically credible uh, than others. Uh, you could extend this to non-political speech. You could do it for searches. I mean, at the moment, uh, if you search something on Google, you get a listing where the hierarchy is determined by this hidden uh, algorithm. And you might want to be able to search, you know, for let's say products on Amazon where they were made in the United States or they're eco-friendly or uh, a whole bunch of other criteria that uh, you could define rather than having the um, algorithm, the platform algorithm do it uh, itself. Now, the way that this would work, I, we actually are working at the moment on a prototype of this. We have a prototype that's actually an extension to a Chrome browser uh, and we hope to be able to roll this out uh, further. The, there's a number of problems with the workability of this middleware idea that really need to be solved, I think, before this becomes uh, something that could actually be done in practice. So one of the problems really has to do with the back end of, of a, you know, let's say a browser extension, because you couldn't possibly filter the millions of bits of information that come across the platform day to day uh, without using, you know, um, uh, a lot of artificial intelligence. Uh, the platforms already do this, as I said, for a lot of the content, uh, uh, you know, they filter out the child pornography and that sort of thing. They would have to continue to do this. And a middleware uh, program would have to ride on top of the material that they've already uh, filtered. But it couldn't be done manually. You, you know, you would have to face a considerable technological challenge of how to uh, uh, filter that information. Uh, it is being done already. There's a company called NewsGuard that rates uh, news sources for their credibility. Uh, you can buy it as a browser extension and they're working with Microsoft in, in their search engine to uh, rate news sites. Uh, so, but it is a substantial uh, technological challenge. The, um, the second big challenge is a business model one. In a way, if, if this were such a desirable service that people would want to have uh, when they use the, the platforms, you'd have to ask the question, why doesn't it exist already? And the reason is that uh, there's not an economic incentive for the, someone to step up. I mean, NewsGuard tries to be a middleware provider. It's not clear uh, whether it's going to be economically you know, viable over the long run. Uh, and in order to incentivize uh, companies to provide these kinds of services, uh, there has to be a different revenue model. And that might require regulation. It might require uh, you know, Congress mandating that the platforms share a certain amount of their advertising uh, revenue for this. Certainly, they'd have to open up their APIs to the point that the middleware companies could actually uh, you know, ride on top of them and so forth. And so uh, that's um, a, a second issue. Uh, a third one I'll let Daphne talk about because she's raised this uh, particularly with regard to Facebook, which has to do with uh, whether this is compatible with existing privacy law. Uh, let me conclude just by pointing to the single biggest uh, objection that has been raised to our idea. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that middleware may actually not get rid of conspiracy theories, hate speech, you know, other kinds of toxic content, and may actually reinforce it. Because uh, in our view, there would be nothing that would prevent a middleware company from 
being the MAGA middleware provider, you know, that uh, would amplify everything that Donald Trump says uh, and the like. Uh, and that's right. Uh, you could certainly, I mean, I, I think you would inevitably expect that this kind of uh, provider would arise if you actually made middleware economically uh, viable. So it will, um, uh, it will reinforce, you know, the filter bubbles and compartmentalization that is a big problem on the internet right now. Uh, however, our feeling is that it cannot be the object of public policy to get rid of this kind of speech. Uh, if you take the American First Amendment seriously, uh, it is constitutional to say things that are false. Uh, it is constitutionally protected to be able to say things that are uncivil, hurtful, you know, uh, and the like. Uh, and uh, it's not really the job of public policy to eliminate that kind of speech uh, and unfortunately, given the state of our society, it's, it's just out there right now. Uh, what we don't want to see happen is the artificial acceleration of, you know, let's say conspiracy theories uh, on a scale that the big platforms are currently capable of. You know, in our view, that's really the target of any kind of effort of this sort is to, you know, avoid that kind of acceleration or uh, takedowns where you have legitimate political information uh, that is not being shown by the platforms in response to certain kinds of political pressure. And this is happening, for example, in India with Facebook, where they've taken down a lot of anti-Modi uh, uh, content uh, in ways that I think do not really accord with a commitment to, you know, to freedom of uh, political speech, but it should, you know, I just want to make it clear at the beginning that this solution does not solve all of the problems on the internet, but I do think it tries to address, you know, this big one of power, and that's the one that we ought to be focused on going forward. So let, with that, let me let me stop, and, and I look forward to the discussion. Great. So thank you very much, uh, Professor Fukuyama, and I'm going to turn uh, the mic over now to Richard Reisman, an uh, innovator, consultant, investor, author of pieces on Tech Policy Press, and his blog that concern these matters. And Richard's going to emcee uh, the remainder of the session, introduce uh, our next two speakers, Natalie and Daphne, who will variously uh, take on some of the points that uh, Professor Fukuyama has just shared. So, uh, Richard. Thank you. Yeah, so I'd like to just go ahead and introduce Natalie Marichal from Ranking Digital Rights. And uh, I think, Justin, you may have mentioned all of these articles from the Journal of Democracy are available online. So, there's good background on what each of these speakers have to say there. Uh, Natalie, please go ahead. Thank you, Dick. And, and thank you very much to, um, to, to Justin and Brian for organizing this event and uh, to Francis Fukuyama for kicking off uh, this conversation in, uh, in the Journal of Democracy, as, as Dick highlighted. Um, so I think one thing that, that we all agree on, on here is that we're dealing with an extraordinarily complex problem. And so that means that there's no silver bullets uh, but as Dick put it in his piece, there may be a few silver case bullets. Uh, in my piece for, for the Journal of Democracy, I argued that data privacy uh, was one. Uh, a lot of people think that, uh, though, though not Francis, uh, for, for reasons he just explained, uh, argue that, that antitrust is another one. Personally, I suspect that we're not going to get very far without using uh, at least a couple, possibly all of these uh, silver-cased 
uh, tools together. So the question here is uh, whether uh, middleware or third-party recommender systems are one of these silver case bullets. I am not convinced, uh, but I am open to, to being persuaded. Uh, and uh, you know whether or not it's a silver case bullet, the several several question a separate question is whether it's nonetheless a good idea uh, that should be pursued. Um, and uh, on that, I think uh, there you know there's there's a lot more more. I'm much more convinced that it's a good idea, uh, whether or not it's it's a it's a silver cased bullet. Another thing that I think uh, there's there's a large agreement on uh, both within within this group and uh, and more broadly is that uh, the the core problem here, as I see uh, as I see it and as uh, Francis framed it, is uh, the business model. But what do we mean by that uh, exactly? Um, I suspect that many people have slightly differing uh, definitions uh, of that. So uh, I'd like to start by sharing uh, mine and my understanding of what I mean when I say that it's the business model. In my piece for, for, for JOD, I highlighted three pillars. Uh, so the first one is surveillance capitalism uh, using Shoshana Zuboff's framework. Uh, so that's, the, that's extracting data from human behavior uh, to create corporate value by renting out the ability to, influ to influence behavior. Now, this ability may be overblown in some cases, and there's a whole separate but related question about um, ad fraud, right? Um, but that's the value proposition, that you can use uh, personal data and uh, targeted advertising uh, as well as uh, earned reach uh, to use the, 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 the industry parlance uh, to influence human behavior. The second pillar is uh, neoliberal faith in the invisible hand of the market. Right, uh, which includes automated ad exchanges. That uh, free markets are the best way to uh, to, to 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 make decisions uh, in society, and that that's that's how we should be allocating value. Uh, and then the third pillar is uh, techno solutionism. So wanting to use tech, uh, including algorithms, including algorithms based on big data, uh, to solve social problems. And that's what's behind, for example, Facebook's obsession with scale. Is that uh, no solution that can't be scale solutions that cannot be scaled are not valued uh, and tend to be uh, rejected kind of out of hand uh, within Facebook. And that's something that uh, scholarship and journalism has documented for a long time and that Francis Haugen's uh, recent uh, leaks in her, in her congressional testimony really you know, bring the receipts to, to this, this argument. That's not new, but we have uh, new evidence uh, to back it up. So there's a, a bunch of other elements uh, that I didn't touch on uh, in, in my piece, uh, three that I wanna mention today. The first uh, that, again, I really do think is a core part of the business model, particularly at Facebook, uh, is really bad corporate governance, uh, where the founder and early employees uh, have really outsized power, uh, which leads to a kind of groupthink uh, that I think uh, Francis Haugen, again, really testified to uh, this week. And, and that was revealed in the Facebook file stories uh, that the Wall Street Journal uh, ran uh, in September. The second element um, that I want to mention here is uh, how central courting favor with governments is uh, to this business model. Here again, this is particularly clear at Facebook, uh, but I think we can find, uh, you know, we can find examples with other platforms as well. Um, so what I'm talking about here with courting favor uh, is is when uh, platform content policy is subject to influence by government relations uh, considerations. So again, using Facebook as the example, and we can talk about why so much of the conversation is really about Facebook, even though we tend to frame it as being about platforms writ large. We, we oftentimes, when we talk about platforms, we're really talking about Facebook. The Wall Street Journal uh, a year or two ago 
did uh, some really great reporting on uh, the fit situation with, uh, within Facebook India, where Anki Das, who, who was leading the, the public policy team uh, for, for India and South Asia uh, at the time, was really, really close to the BJP and uh, had herself expressed some hate speech against Muslims uh, on Facebook um, and so on. And there's a, there's a ton of other examples of this. Uh, and then the third uh, thing that I want to highlight that I think is, is really important to understanding how Facebook in particular operates as a company is that the, the corporate identity is completely distinct from its, the core economic activity. So we're talking about platforms that make money from ads, right? But think of themselves as social media platforms with really high-minded missions of connecting the world. But their ability to fulfill that mission is undermined by the economic incentives. And so that's the case that I made uh, in, a, in a piece for Tech Policy Press over the summer, where I argued that Facebook is an ad, is an ad tech platform and that that's how we, is an ad tech company, pardon, uh, and that that's how we should regulate. So that's kind of, you know, some context for how I think about uh, this idea of the business model and, and what we do about it. So we're here today to talk about uh, the specific uh, proposal of middleware or third-party uh, recommender systems. Um, you know, while you know, I at least you know think that this is no solution is going to be enough on its own. So we need to think. You know, we need to examine each potential solution individually, while keeping in, in mind that um, it the idea is to implement it in conjunction um, with, with others. So you know, so my my starting point is that um, third party recommender systems are probably not a silver case bullet, though you know I could be wrong. But is it still a useful thing to try? A number of my colleagues in Europe have have pointed out to me since since the Journal of Democracy piece came out um, that they do think that third party recommender systems are useful, particularly in Europe, uh, because the GDPR already protects privacy. Although, as we all know, uh, GDPR enforcement. Uh, is not where it needs to be, and I and that that's a really good point, you know. And some uh, a, a few a few colleagues, uh, particularly at uh, Panoptica Foundation, you know, pointed out that uh, without privacy protection, there was a there were a lot of uh, potential pitfalls with uh, with a third party recommender system. But that if you assume that those protections are already in place, and, and Daphne spoke to the the all the you know the complex privacy questions that would need to be resolved. Uh, in in her own essay, uh, and and hopefully we'll hear some more from her about about this uh, later in just a few minutes. Anyway, I I, I thought that was a really good point that that I would bring up here. Um, and but we, anyway, we probably won't know whether it's a good idea unless we try. So you know, let's let's try, right? But so, the, but a bigger question for me is whether it's even feasible, right? And uh, you know, I mentioned that the Daphne uh, really helpfully identified four big problem areas uh, that need to be solved. So there's technological feasibility, which is a point on which I have no contributions whatsoever, um, but nonetheless uh, want to flag that that's a question that needs to be solved. Uh, the second is the business model, which is how does everyone get paid? Um, and that's one that I'm particularly interested in talking about. There's curation costs. So what, what impact might such, a, such systems have on public discourse? Uh, and then there's privacy. Right. And then I'll add another one, which is how do we make existing platforms go along with this plan? Can we compel them legally? Can we create economic incentives to make them want to? You know, I think there's there's a need to kind of figure out how we would get them to open up their APIs at a minimum so that this can work. Uh, somebody in the in the chat pointed out that Twitter used to have to allow um, third party clients to connect to the API. And so that, you know, if this was still possible, it's not anymore. Um, if this was still possible, um, you know, there's nothing that, you know, it, 
these part these third party clients could essentially function as uh, as middleware providers, right? So uh, the question is, you know, why did Twitter get cut off that possibility? What would it take to convince Twitter to bring it back? You know, for a bunch of different reasons, I think uh, Twitter is probably a more fruitful place to try to a more fru- fruitful platform to try to experiment with than uh, than, than Facebook for example, because they're really drawing up the, the, the drawbridges and, um, you know, insert your medieval metaphors uh, as you will. But another point I, I want to make before I turn it over to Daphne is that I think to, to answer all of these questions, one thing that it's helpful to be really, really clear about is whether we're envisioning middleware services as doing content moderation, uh, which I, you know, I define as um, Deciding, you know, deciding what the rules are for for content on the platform, identifying uh, content that um, breaks those rules, and then uh, taking action on it. Right, and so it's it's largely most it's it can be helpful to think of it as a as a leave up or take down uh, binary. Though there are a lot of intermediary content moderation um, steps that that can be taken uh, to, to, to action content that's identified through the through the content moderation process. So are we talking about that? Or are we talking about content curation, recommendation and ranking? So those would be the the engagement based algorithms that we've been talking about uh, so much this week in the context of the, the Haugen testimony? Or are we talking about both, not outsourced, but being uh, delegated to, uh, to to third party systems? So Francis's proposal seems to be, from my read anyway, seems to be about both content moderation and content curation, but there's a lot of uh, variations on this theme. So certainly when colleagues in Europe are talking about it, they use the phrase uh, third-party recommender systems because they're just talking about the recommender systems. They're not talking about content moderation. Personally, I see far greater problems with uh, third-party content moderation uh, than with third-party content recommendation, mainly because content moderation requires tremendous amounts of human labor and really specialized human labor, um, especially when you think when you th- think about um, you know all the different languages involved, plus all the different contexts involved, plus all the different uh, subject area expertises involved. Here, I think this might be a situation where there's an, a natural monopoly, right? Where it makes more sense to have uh, you know fewer larger entities doing this work, but with tremendous amounts of, uh, of oversight and, and accountability. Uh, on the other hand, content recommend, recommendation, and I'm, I, you know, I tend to use recommendation, curation, and ranking kind of interchangeably, even though um, you know, on a technical level, these are different types of algorithms that we're talking about, but they fulfill the, the same rough function from a, from a user's perspective, because this is mostly, again, based on, based on algorithms. Um, so I, I think it would be easier for uh, there to be different uh, competing recommendation algorithms than for there to be defi- a different competing moderation providers. Um, though, of course, there's a ton of human involvement in creating the data that algorithms are then trained on. That's kind of where I wanted to, to start at. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back over to, to Dick and, and, and to Daphne. Uh, and really looking forward to, uh, to the conversation. Thanks. Thank you. So yeah, I'd like to, let's just move right on to Daphne, who's at Stanford, and go on into your presentation. Sure, I'm Daphne Keller. I run the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. And I wanna talk about the middleware proposal. I think I have 15 minutes. I'm gonna try to use about seven and a half of them in the weeds um, and and the rest kind of zooming back out to the, the big picture questions. So as I 
outlined in my uh, response to um, to Francis in in the Journal of Democracy issue. I have four in the weeds questions about how this becomes implementable. You know, only operationalizable things happen. So figuring out (laughs) how to operationalize middleware uh, is of the essence. And and my four questions, roughly speaking, um, are how will the technology work? How will the revenue work? How will the costs of content moderation work? And how will privacy work? Uh, Those first two, I don't claim particular expertise in, so I'll dispose of them kind of quickly. Um, You know, the the technology question is, can you build a way for a competitor to, you know, remotely via an API um, take in information from Facebook or from Twitter or from Google's web search corpus, for example, in in a way that allows instantaneous, you know, fast, equally um, useful results? Uh, I don't know. That sounds hard to me, <laughs> but I, I've had some engineers tell me that they have hope. Uh, the second question is about the revenue, and, and Natalie talked about that a fair amount. You know, how do you set this up so that the middleware providers get paid? Does that mean tinkering with the exist- existing very weird multi-party ads infrastructure? Uh, you know, h- how do you make that work? Um, and then the, the third and fourth, the content moderation costs and privacy, I, I will dwell on a, a little bit longer. Um, so the part about the costs of content moderation, I think comes down to the fact that there are redundant costs that every middleware provider will encounter that are a lot like the redundant costs that basically every platform encounters now. Uh, For example, if there is a widespread video with a man on a horse singing a song in Kurdish, are they all going to hire a Kurdish translator to translate it? Or is there some way to make that system more efficient and share the translation costs? Um, If that video features a flag that means a lot to Kurds and to Turks, but doesn't mean something to a content moderator sitting in California or the Philippines or India, uh, do they all have to find the experts to research that? Or is there some way to share that information? You know, or, you know, if it's an American wearing a Hawaiian shirt in 2021 and a content moderator sitting in other parts of the world thinks that that looks benign and it has no, no cultural resonance for them. Um, I think the bottom line is many of those redundant costs can't be avoided if we want the different middleware providers to genuinely bring independent judgment and priorities to their evaluation of the content and to their decision about, you know, whether you as one of their subscribers want to see this or don't want to see it or want it promoted or want it demoted. But I also think that there are proposals out there in the ether right now that would be the beginning of an infrastructure to deal with that. Um, And, you know, we, this is models for platforms to share information Um, There are things like Facebook's threat exchange program, which I don't know that much about, but I hope someone's researching it. Um, There are things like the GIFCT, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, which has the great upside of sharing information and um, hashes to identify violent extremist content 
to sort of reduce the cost of that. It has the great downside that nobody in all of civil society or academia or the public generally knows what those hashes represent, knows what images are being blocked, what uh, videos are being blocked, what the error rate is, et cetera. Um, so the models we have so far for platforms sharing information to make content moderation more efficient have some real problems. On the other hand, if we want middleware to be affordable, uh, if we want the moderator, the competing moderators to have any chance um, of, of doing their job and, uh, and being able to bear the costs, then I do think we need to find ways to, to share those, those costs. And to Natalie's point, I'm trying to think about if, the, if I really see a difference between content moderation, meaning responding to an individual piece of content by taking it down or demoting it or something versus ranking algorithms globally, you know, that set, set the whole order of your Facebook feed, for example. And I kind of think those two are increasingly fluid these days. So I'm not sure that we even quite can differentiate them in practice. And, and I would think that, uh, you know, again, from a middleware provider to be useful, uh, probably they would want to do both. Unless you're a user who says, well, I, I want to see only the content Facebook permits under its moderation system, but I want it ranked differently. Or, you know, you, you're willing to take one of those two things from Facebook um, and only the other one from your middleware provider. That brings us to the privacy question. And the question here is not very complicated, uh, but the answers to it, I think, are quite complicated. The question is, if I'm on Facebook and I sign up for a middleware provider to moderate what I see differently than Facebook would or to rank it differently, uh, does the middleware provider get to see the posts shared to me privately by my friends? Do they get to see my cousin's breastfeeding photo? Do they get to see my cousin's assertion that the earth is flat? you know, or posts spreading COVID disinformation. If they can't see those privately shared things, then they can't do nearly as good a job providing the service we want them to, you know, or be economically competitive with Facebook, which can see all of those things uh, in order to do its own moderation. On the other hand, if they can, see all of my friends' posts, my cousin's breastfeeding pictures, et cetera, then my friends have lost control over their sensitive personal data. Uh, they're relying on me to make an informed consent about this potentially fly-by-night middleware provider uh, taking their data and being responsible with it. And, and that's basically exactly the scenario that we had with Cambridge Analytica. It is something that makes people very upset. And so both, you know, as a matter of both values and law, including things like Facebook's FTC consent decree uh, and the GDPR in, in the EU, um, that, that's a complicated question. And I, I have a more recent blog post that I wrote after that Journal of Democracy piece um, that, that tries to, you know, just get really nerdy about this and ask, are there technological fixes for this problem, you know, can we use the blockchain? And usually I, I never even use that word, but like it has a role, I think maybe. Um, but, but I do think the bottom line is at most the technological fixes can sort of eat away at parts of the privacy problem. And then you can use laws to 
kind of eat away at other parts of the problem, mostly by punishing bad actors after the fact, if you can catch them and they're in your jurisdiction. But the bottom line is ultimately, I, th I think there are trade-offs that will have to be made between these sort of competition and speech goals on the one hand and privacy goals on the other. And I wish that weren't the answer. And I hope somebody here has a better one um, be because I, I would rather have it all. Okay, so those are my in the weeds things. I'm gonna step back to the big, big picture thing. And you know, something I, I really appreciated when D Dick wrote a post kind of expanding on the points that I had made. Um, and I, you know, I said there are four issues, the, the technology, the revenue, the costs, the privacy. Uh, and Dick said there are five things. And the fifth one is echo chambers, you know, like, do we really want this policy outcome of moving people into places where they are potentially like opting into the all lies all the time channel or, you know, the, um, the hate channel. Um, and I, I think I didn't spend enough time on this because, because I'm among other things, a first amendment lawyer. And I feel like, you know, we're looking at legal reform here and the law can't stop people from opting into that uh, any more than it can in their choice of, um, you know, cable or newspaper or books. Um, but, but I do think, I, I think we need to engage in it more deeply because it is a really, really big question for a, a lot of smart thinkers in this area. I think it's like, it's a really big and profound one. Um, do we want a platform like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or Google um, to be really big because that makes online speech more controllable or don't we? And we might want them to be really big for these like very real reasons that build on existing consensus and laws. We might want them to be really big because then they will do a better job than a million little competitors would do of reducing globally illegal and dangerous speech like child sexual abuse material. That's one of the bottom lines here. Uh, maybe on the flip side, we want them to be really big and regulable because then uh, lawmakers can somehow force them to protect speech, uh, speech that no government should be able to restrict consistent with human rights. Um, and, and if we sort of believe um, that that regulability leads to on balance better outcomes, uh, but then maybe that's actually what we want. Um, the other reasons to resist fragmentation of control over content moderation um, aren't grounded in law or global consensus like that, but they can feel pretty consensual, certainly in the sort of um, groups where I spend, tend to spend my time, which is stuff like, well, we want them to reduce uh, electoral disinformation. We want them to reduce COVID disinformation. These are things that in the US at least cannot be prohibited uh, much of it under the First Amendment. We can't use agreed upon constitutional instruments to do this. We cannot use laws enacted by democratically accountable bodies like Congress to do this because of the First Amendment. Uh, but these things are rightly a source of massive concern. And when I talk to platform people who just like work their hearts out on trust and safety teams, um, they can't imagine wanting to give that up, you know, wanting to take the important work that they to tr do trying to fight things like disinformation or hate speech and make it less effective uh, by fragmenting users' experience in, into, you know, a bunch of different middleware providers. I, I find that really understandable. On the other hand, if that's our goal in preserving bigness, if our goal is to 
enable the enforcement of speech restrictions the government could not enforce, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> like we should acknowledge that we're kind of abandoning how government has worked so far, both the part about democratic accountability and, and the part about constitutional or human rights. And if that's what we're doing, we are accepting that these are profit-driven companies, that their choices are likely to be driven by majoritarian pressures, by the prior priorities of advertisers. Their power is not just the power of Mark Zuckerberg um, or Jack Dorsey. It's potentially that they are a point of leverage um, for governments, you know, or for whoever controls access to lucrative markets, like China getting Apple to take the New York Times app out of its app store in China and an app used by protesters out of the app store in Hong Kong. There, there's a real way in which giant plat uh, powerful platforms become a lever uh, for someone else acting behind the scenes. Having laid out this big, horrible, stark dilemma, you know, I think I come down the same place that Francis does and that Corey does. I really like the line in Francis's Stanford report, which by the way, I didn't actually work on. I did some other work on what I called magic APIs elsewhere. Um, but I really like the metaphor in there about the loaded gun that someone's going to use, like the Chekhov's gun. <laughs> that, like once it's introduced, it's gonna be used by the end of the play. Um, and, and I worry about having that choke point and, and that power out there because I really believe in the fallibility and the corruptibility of human institutions. Um, regime change happens. Uh, you can look at a lot of countries and a lot of companies and a lot of other institutions to, to see that. Um, we can't assume that power, uh, government power or platform power will always be used for the values that any one of us hold dear. They could be used for the opposite values. Um, and so building a choke point on human interactions that's explicitly unaccountable to democratically enacted laws uh, or human rights or constitutional rights. And then, you know, because we hope or believe it's going to be used benignly, that, that's an act of faith that I, that I have trouble sharing. So that giant big picture question is why the in the weeds questions matter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why it matters if this is implementable and how and what values trade-offs are involved in making that implementable. And I'm really excited to have this group, including all of the amazing people who um, are, are showing up in the chat uh, here to talk about it. Great. Thank you. So we've got about 35 minutes to discuss all of this before we move on to other speakers. Um, I wanted to sort of make some sort of opening comments to integrate some of the views that I've had listening to all this and, and set some, some possible themes um, and then sort of open it up for whatever debate we want to do, which I think will be lively because of all the viewpoints we have. And these are sort of cross-cutting issues, you know, with the idea that we're at a critical moment in the evolution of democracy we need to look at the evolution over time on a fairly long 10, next 10, 20 years, not just what we're doing for the next year or two, because we're at a critical point. And we're basically digitizing our traditional ecosystems for human discourse, how we mediate consent socially. We've got this dialectic we're talking about between centralized and decentralized control. But I, coming from sort of a systems background, I actually designed some systems that have to do with open markets and filtering and collaborative 
work on open innovation about 20 years ago. So I've been sort of watching this evolution for a long time. And I think what we're going to see is a distribution of function that's going to be a complex mix of centralized and distributed with crossover controls. Financial market systems is sort of an interesting model because it has that same kind of pattern. Uh, there's growing cross-platform issues, data like the uh, Trump stuff goes onto Twitter, even though he's not on Twitter. We've got the network effects that drive scale, but obviously we need some kind of distributed control to deal with all the variations of individuals and cultures. Uh, we've also got the perverse incentives of the business model that we need to decouple, which unbundling the filtering does some level of decoupling. You can argue about how much. So, you know, I think we all agree there's no silver bullet. I think we might see it as an early step toward this more diverse distributed view where it would, and I think we're going to see a universal infrastructure where people can post. And I think probably Dr. Owen and Mike Masnick are going to talk you know, more about this direction where you want universal interconnectivity, but you want control over the filters to control what you see and your society wants that as well. So all of these other remedies are going to layer upon that infrastructure. There's also questions of, you know, buried in this debate or that, that have surfaced a little bit are questions of, you know, what do we mean by free speech versus proportionality and the differences in Europe versus the U.S. about that uh, and basic models of what democracy is. There's different models that, you know, give more or less responsibility to citizens and to government. So, you know, we can perhaps we can sort of move towards some agreement that, and I think I get a sense of it that, you know, all of these things make sense and, and we should find ways that we can jointly promote them to legislators and, and regulators to make these things happen. Um, so that's sort of the very general point. Um, picking up on a couple of the other points, which Francis had raised in his piece and, and then Natalie has raised which has to do with the difference between blocking moderation and, and uh, filtering ranking recommenders. And it seems to me that's really essential because it has very different impacts in terms of both what it does to dialogue and the technical effects of how you do it and where you want control for that to be. So even though the, you know, there's sort of extremes of illegal content that need to be blocked and probably central control is the way to do that efficiently. There's the other extreme that's very discretionary that clearly can be left to ranking and recommenders. And then there's sort of a middle ground that's hard to figure out. And some of that has to do with, you know, if we build good ranking recommender systems and maybe we have some level of coordinated flow control that prevents these cascades of feedback that build the viral uh, extremes so that the filters can do their work reasonably and not get blown away by rapid cycles, then you can have this sort of distributed control and have it work in a way. So that's something I think we need to move toward. It's obviously not immediate. Another point I wanted to just sort of pick up on was the privacy issues and, and the question of, you know, do you share your friend's personal stuff with whoever's managing this? But there's, to me, the metadata on flows is really more important than the content of what's in those flows for managing it in a lot of ways. 
And it has to do with some of the algorithmic approaches that I've looked at use sort of Google's PageRank strategy where you're using human judgment and recommendations and, and reputation to figure out which speech is likely to be you know, problematic and which isn't. And also to use it in your ranking recommenders of who's, what's gonna to appeal to who. So to me, the, met, the metadata that lets you amplify the human judgments that you are sensing from these signals is really the more powerful tool that hasn't been exploited very well. It's been exploited for selling ads, but not for moderating content. And that you know, will help control the virality as well. So you don't have to give up the privacy of the content if, you, if these services have access to this metadata. And it can be de-anonymized so that it's not associated back to the individual in, a, in an identifiable way. Um, and then the final point I wanted to make uh, was on business models, just decoupling the filters from the platform gives you a little bit of decoupling, but there are other opportunities. And one has to do with sort of this idea that the ads are using our attention and our data. And lots of people have said we should be compensated for that. And there's this idea of the reverse meter, which I think is sort of the central way of how you can pay for, for these middleware or filtering services, which is they're actually, and they could, this could work for advertising as well, because it shouldn't just be Facebook or Twitter targeting ads to you. If you had a filtering service, it could be specific to advertising where you can set preferences as to what kind of ads you want, what interests you have, what you don't want to see. And if you have a negotiation over what ads you're willing to see, and you could be compensated from the advertising revenue because they want your attention and they want your data. And so there's a price for it. And the price is you have to pay for a service, which is the user agent. Um, so you pay the user and a share goes to their user agents to fund this process of ranking and recommenders and both for advertising and for content. My other blog is more on business model stuff and it gets in more detail on, on ways you can do that. So with that sort of as some general comments, I think it's time to open it up for all of you. So, you know, who, whoever wants to go first, uh, I guess we'll have sort of a free-for-all and I can comment as, as seems appropriate. So I, I'm interested in responding on the metadata point. Um, maybe this is a bad place to start because I'm just going to make things more complicated and harder. <laughs> but um, so, you know, I think a lot of content moderation does depend on, on metadata. You know, for example, uh, spam detection and demotion is very much driven by metadata. And, um, you know, Twitter has said that a lot of how they detect terrorist content isn't really by the content. It's, it's by the, you know, the patterns of uh, connections between accounts uh, following each other or coming from the same IP address or appearing, you know, at the same those aren't the examples they gave, but this is what I assume they're using. Um, and I think it's a big part of what Camille Francoise has called the, the ABC framework, the actors behavior content as these sort of three frameworks for, for approaching responding to problematic online content. And, and I think it just makes everything much harder because um, if we pretend that metadata isn't useful to content moderation, th that kind of simplifies things. Uh, if we acknowledge that metadata is useful, that is often personally identifiable data about users, including users who 
you know, who haven't signed up for this new middleware provider. And it's a different kind of personally identifiable data than just the fact that they posted particular content at a particular time. Um, and all of the all of the concerns that that I raised, it, um, but in particular the, the privacy concern and the um, just like how do we even do this? What is the technology that takes metadata structured around the backend engineering of Twitter or whomever and share it uh, with a competitor? That that gets that gets really hard. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm scared to hear you bring up metadata. Um, because that adds another layer of, of questions I'm not sure how to solve. Well, one quick thought on that is, you know, and, and I, would, I would think given your, your time at Google, I don't know if you got exposed to the people doing their detailed algorithms, but, but as I understand- I was the web search lawyer, so. Yeah. So they, you know, they do some amazing stuff with some really hairy math and lots of computation to make sense out of, you know, this array of links which they use as signals of what they used to call webmaster judgment. And then they use patterns of what, what you actually click on when they, you click on search results and all this kind of stuff. And to some extent, I think that, that I mean, there's an interesting question. Is that private data? Uh, because, you know, in regular culture, people get reputations for how they behave. Um, and we decide who to listen to based on the, their reputation, not just what they say. So, so I think, yeah, you're raising important points, but I think there's a counter argument that that's fundamental to how society figures out what's meaningful and what isn't. So that, that's something we need to sort out. Sure, although we can't extrapolate from patterns of behavior on the public web to patterns of behavior among users uh, you know, who have private accounts on Facebook. Yeah, it gets tricky. Yeah. Uh, if I could um, respond to a couple of the comments, which were all, I thought, extremely useful general response is that this idea about middleware has not been fully worked out and we're continuing to you know, think about it. And so, for example, how is the business model going to work? We don't know. You know. We really don't know. There's a lot of different potential sources of revenue. I think you probably would have to have a regulatory environment that forced you know, the platforms or advertisers to cough up you know, a certain amount of money to make this viable. But that's one of the things that we're trying to you know, uh, figure out. The other one that both uh, Dick and Natalie brought up, this issue of uh, blocking versus ranking, I think is a really difficult one. And I, I don't personally have a strong view on that. Uh, but let's just put it this way. Uh, do you want middleware to actually prevent you from seeing certain content based on the choice you make? Or do you want it simply to be uh, labeled? And there's arguments to be made in both uh, ways. So for example, if Donald Trump becomes the 2024 Republican candidate, I just do not see any way that Twitter can keep him off of the platform. I I just think that that would, you know, to have one of the two major candidates being blocked by this private company uh, in a presidential campaign, I just don't see how that's legitimate. But if you did actually have middleware you could put them back on, but then you would have a variety, you know, our idea is you could have multiple middleware providers and you click on, a, you know, the buttons on which ones you want to see. And if he says something really stupid or wrong or outrageous, you know, you'll get an immediate, uh, you know, correction of that. And that might be a way of preventing, you know, the 
the blocking of legitimate political speech at the same time, you know, putting it a little bit under uh, under control um, and, and softening uh, the impact. Uh, but like I said, I don't have a clear, strong view about, you know, how to proceed on that, but I think it's a very uh, important point. I want to just get back to the large issue that Daphne raised at the end, because that, that's the central one. And I actually think that in the community of people that follow this sort of issue about content moderation, this is not stated explicitly, but there is this division between people that genuinely want fragmentation and decentralization and others that either they've thrown in the towel and think there's no alternative or they actually think this is a good idea that these big platforms really do have this power. They just want to see the power exercised in the right way. And, you know, there's arguments to be made in both directions. This metaphor of the loaded gun that Daphne uh, mentioned, you know, was my way of thinking about it, that the power is a loaded gun. And right now the person picking it up, you may think is not going to shoot you, but a, a long-term institutional solution is to take the gun away and not to trust the good intentions of the person that might uh, that might pick it up. But let me just point out that there's a there's a legacy media analog to this, uh, which is public broadcasting, because many com uh, countries, uh, mostly in Europe, but also Japan, Korea, uh, have a, a public broadcaster, which for them is the authoritative source of true news as opposed to uh, fake news. And they're generally, you know, uh, highly trusted. This is a method that we tried in the United States, but you know the our public broadcasters kind of gotten taken over by the left, and they're not regarded as impartial. But for the you know ARD and the BBC and a number of other European countries, especially in Northern Europe, um, you know they do serve as a kind of powerful tool uh, that the mainstream elites have for guiding conversation and establishing what's you know what's um, uh, what's true. But what's happened in Eastern Europe is with the rise of these populist regimes in Hungary and Poland, and I think this really began with Berlusconi in Italy, you get a populist leader that's elected and then they take over the public broadcaster. And all of a sudden they've got you know, this big weapon that they can use, uh, this formerly trusted nonpartisan you know, source of information becomes a very powerful tool. You know, Putin uh, has done this in, in Russia in effect. And so that's a, a real world illustration of the problem of the loaded gun, right? That many people I think imagine that if we had this gun, we could use it, you know, good people would use it. But I just, <laughs> I just really have my doubts about whether uh, given, you know, the kinds of political forces out there right now that this is a safe long-term solution. If, if I may, I'd like to, to respond, Francis, to your to your point about, uh, you know, that the, the Twitter would have to or, or should um, reinstate uh, Trump's Twitter account if, if he's the nominee in, in, in 20, 2024, because mm -hmm. I have to really disagree with you there. Um, you know, there's there's no must carry uh, requirement for for a platform for any kind of individual or, or, or entity. You know, there's no um, there's no right to a platform. Certainly not right to to the specific platform of of Twitter, right? Uh, on the other hand, the First Amendment does protect Twitter's rights right to uh, to, um, to to moderate its its platform according to to its rules. 
there, there are plenty of, of, of debates to be had about specific rules that platforms have, but the, the specific rule that, that Trump uh, was suspended for, I think, is perfectly in keeping with, uh, with the public interest and with uh, international human rights standards. And I think to simply say like, oh, he's the nominee from a major political party. Okay, well, just forget that he's been inciting violence and spreading hate, hate speech and undermining elections for years. Uh, I think that sets a really, really dangerous precedent. I mean, would we would would we make would we would we take that approach with um, with a president of a different country, say say Nigeria, where Twitter is still blocked uh, since uh, earlier this year? The the president uh, is, had some uh, had some tweets that were um, you know very clear uh, incitement of to violence and and hate speech against a, a minority ethnic group uh, in Nigeria. Twitter uh, removed the tweet pursuant to to the the exact same policies under which it banned uh, it, it banned Donald Trump, um, and as a result. Uh, uh, the Nigeria, the the government banned uh, Twitter, so it's still blocked uh, on a on a technical level yeah. uh, in the country. And to their credit, you know, to its credit, Twitter has not caved, has not reinstated that the, those that the account of the president to to get access to the country, uh, which is uh, into that market, which is you know which has great economic costs for um, for Nigeria, that has a tremendous impact on the freedom of expression and access to information of of Nigerians. But you know, what's the point of having rules? if the most powerful people in the world aren't subject to them. And that's that's the very heart of the controversy behind Facebook's cross-check pr- program, right, that, that Francis uh, Haugen uh, revealed in, in the past few weeks. Yeah, I don't think there's a legal obstacle to Twitter continuing to keep him off. I just think it's a political, uh, more of a political consideration that, um, and, you know, and obviously if he went back on Twitter and then said the kind of stuff to incite, you know, insurrection and violence like he did on January 2nd, they'd be justified in throwing him off again. But I just think as a general rule, you know, there has to be a certain degree of neutrality by these powerful private platforms, um, you know, when you're actually having a legitimate democratic uh, contest. Now, we may all know that, you know, Trump is really not a a real Democrat uh, deep in his heart, but I don't know, it just strikes me as a as an exercise of, you know, private power that is really, you know, not very there's legitimate. Pl- there's, there's plenty of other platforms, though, right? I mean, I, I don't think we, we need to spend uh, the, the, you know, we have plenty of other things to discuss, but I, I just really disagree with you uh, about that. You know, the, 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 the rules are clear. The rules are completely com- compatible with, again, with the, with the public interest and, and with uh, international human rights standards. And as people are saying in the chat, um, Trump has never, has never stopped uh, and he's not going to stop. So, uh, so I think actually, you know, any, you know, neutrality and fairness would, you know, dictate um, treating him the same way as, 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 as I would be treated or you would be treated if, if we were making similar comments um, on, on online uh, platforms. Um, well, I think this, this is a, a really interesting example of where the, the short term versus the long term view diverge. Because you know, right now we have these private platforms, and Natalie's arguments are very sound uh, in that context. But if you look toward a future where these systems interconnect and become a universal utility, um, where anybody can post into it, and then we have selective filtering services that control who sees what of that mass, then the argument sort of shifts to the idea that blocking someone is an extremely draconian thing 
that is, you know, should only be used for clearly criminal things, inciting violence, child porn, stuff like that, and should be used very sparingly. And you rely on filters to do that. Um, and and to, to Francis's comment of the question of labeling and filtering, already there's so much stuff that it's filtered out. A lot of it's filtered out anyway. You see only a small fraction of the stuff that you can potentially see because the filters rank which of the handful are going to be in your window or if you scroll down a moderate amount and everything else you know, doesn't come unless you just scroll, scroll, scroll uh, without interruption. So filtering can be effective if it's done well. And so to me, in the long term, that's the way to filter out stuff like the harm that Trump does. And, and, and then flow controls and things like that would be on top of it. But obviously, we're not at that point yet. So, I mean, I think this gets to a systems design question that Karen Melchior was bringing up in, in the chat, which is, if you have this system of like a node that is Facebook as we currently know it, and then, or Twitter or YouTube, whatever, um, and then on top of that, they offer their flavor of moderation or ranking and competing middleware providers offer other flavors. Is the starting point that Facebook as the middle point in the node takes down content that is illegal and nothing else, and then feeds out, you know, all the legal content to the node providers to do with as they will. Um, if that is, the, I think that's the most politically viable model to be, you know, for sure. But like, if that is the model, then it's very different from the kinds of truly decentralized or federated systems um, that a lot of, you know, that Corey or Mike might talk about later, um, or that you see with Mastodon or possibly with Twitter's project Blue Sky, where the idea is truly there is no one central point of control, uh, you know, and, and different services can can apply different rules. It, it also introduces, um, you know, this, again, the risk of having a choke point if, if the node, Facebook, Twitter, whoever, screws up and takes down the wrong thing, um, that ramifies out to everyone else. If they become vulnerable to influence from a government to quietly do things, that ramifies out to everyone else. Um, you know, so, so there are trade-offs built in there. There's also a just a, a more in the weeds design question of, well, then is the node, when, when different countries prohibit different speech, who is in charge of geo-blocking you know, Holocaust denial in France, for example, does Facebook layer in geo-blocking for illegal content on a country by country basis and feed that out as part of what it's distributing to the middleware providers? I think the answer is probably yes, you know, but, but there is a, there's both operational complexity there and a very consequential design choice about whether there is this centralized point of, of control for purposes of legal compliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, those are, those are all. <laughs> important questions. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and different systems could be designed. I agree with the questions, Daphne. I, I don't, I, I don't know how it, how it would work, but, you know, but I'm, I'm thinking to your, to your point uh, that, you know, only, only proposals that are um, operationalized can be, can be implemented. And I'm still really stuck on um, how we make the existing platforms go along with this. Like, do we, is there a mechanism to legally comply, compel them to? And uh, my sense is no, but maybe there's something I'm not thinking of. Um, is there a way to structure, like to, to structure economic incentives such that 
um, they would want to? Uh, are we just using peer pressure or, you know, not so peer pressure? Because, you know, I, I don't think Facebook thinks of me as a peer. I certainly don't think of Facebook as my peer. How do we force this to happen? Because if there's no way to make the, the platforms play along, like we're having a super interesting intellectual conversation, but, you know, we kind of need them involved to, to implement. You have to, I think you have to use state power to regulate them, to force them to open up, to permit this to happen. They have to be uh, made to open their APIs such that a middleware provider could plug into it and provide this kind of moderation service. And they probably have to be compelled to give up a certain proportion of their uh, ad revenues uh, in order to support the the business model. This isn't going to happen voluntarily. you know, Jack Dorsey claims that he'd love to give away this power because it's such a headache for him. But in fact, <laughs> they're they're not going to do this voluntarily. So I think, you know, this is a case where you really do need, a, a, you know, a statutory intervention to make this happen. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. One, uh, I'm hoping that maybe Mike Masnick, who's been in touch with some of the people at Blue Sky, uh, might be able to comment on, you know, how that's going and, and what that's likely to be, at least as a demonstration project, if not a serious shift of control toward this decentralization. Daphne, do you, do you, do you have, as the, as the law professor uh, here on, on the call, do you have thoughts about the specific mechanisms that, like legal mechanisms can, that could be used for this? I had assumed this could, with Francis, that this could only happen through state action. Uh, that it's not going to happen voluntarily, or if it does, it won't happen, you know, in the optimal way voluntarily. Um, and so, you know, for example, in the, the Digital Services Act in Europe, there are some amendments on the table in the parliament to, you know, to try to force this as, as part of the mandates, I, I think just for very large online platforms, but, but, but maybe for more. Um, whether... First of all, whether the, anything is politically realistic in the U.S. is its own question. And then, you know, whether if Congress got its act together to pass whatever we all think is the most optimal version of this, you know, would that be a First Amendment violation, you know, taking away editorial discretion of the platforms? Would it be a taking? There are open questions. But, you know, as you know, I've written a lot on how strong the platform's arguments are that they have First Amendment rights not to be compelled to carry content they don't want to, you know, to take down Trump if they want to. I think those arguments are pretty strong, but I think in a a universe where they get to have their say and they just have to share resources to let other people have their say also through alternate ranking mechanisms, um, those First Amendment objections become much less strong uh, than, than they are today. Well, in that vein, I'm, I've been wondering, you know, the, the model that I see has to has this idea, you know, it's speech versus reach, which I've also called freedom of expression versus freedom of impression. The idea that users have a right to control what's in their feed and how it's filtered. So I don't know if there's any First Amendment kind of basis where it's already baked in implicitly that there's a, you know, a, a freedom of impression of those listening, um, you know, I understand that like amplification is something that you know, can be regulated within limits, but it's very limited. Uh, or is it something that would take, you know, new law, or is it just impossible? 
Uh, I happen to have an article on this, um, so I'll answer it again. Um, basically, under U.S. First Amendment precedent, if Congress wants to mandate that certain currently legal speech can't be amplified as much, you know, to reduce its reach, that's just as hard as mandating that the speech be banned altogether. Uh, it faces the same level of, of First Amendment scrutiny. By the way, if I could just make one more comment in reference to Daphne's uh, example about the Kurdish flag, I actually think that there's an international dimension to middleware that is a big uh, selling point, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say that Facebook simply does not have the political knowledge to, you know, to adequately uh, monitor the political speech of 180 different countries. They just, they just don't, and they never, they never will. And one of the advantages of middleware is um, uh, if, you know, things are being, there are symbols that are being displayed that are controversial or one thing or another, there are certainly people in Kurdistan or in Turkey or in, you know, Iraq that do care about this stuff. Uh, and they will have the opportunity to offer a very, you know, specific service for people that speak their language, they're using Facebook in their territory. Uh, and they presumably will have the knowledge to actually interpret culturally what's you know, what's really happening. Now, the problem that it doesn't get at is this uh, takedown problem, that if the platform is actually not permitting people to see legitimate speech, as I think is pretty well documented in the case of India right now, uh, middleware doesn't help you with that, um, unless somehow it compels the platforms not to take down things and, and simply to have them ranked or or labeled. Uh, but but I really do think that we Americans tend to focus just on our problems, but these platforms become a big political problem in many, many different countries. Uh, and I do think that, you know, we have to think about solutions for them as well. Well, a quick comment on that is if, if we get to the stage where there is this sort of, you know, underlying utility infrastructure and there are takedowns at that level, then there's a case for the takedown should be contingent and those things should be go into a holding thing and there should be a process for appeal and redress and explanation of what's going on and, and you know, a timeliness requirement for some kinds of things so that you know, there would be limits on what a nation state can do uh, within this infrastructure. Right. So I guess we're, we're sort of getting to our closing point. The only thing I, would, I guess I would close with, I you know, while there's lots of differences of opinion, it seems like to the extent that we can influence legislators and regulators, you know, in, in unison to create an agency that can help sort this stuff out, that would be a productive thing. Yeah, that was actually part of our recommendation in our report that we really do need a specialized uh, digital agency and that this can't just be an add-on to the FTC or the Justice Department uh, because, you know, the technical knowledge about how you would open up an API, for example, for how you would regulate uh, a kind of machine learning algorithm, you know, to filter, that capability just doesn't exist, I think, right now in, in our current uh, regulatory setup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and experts could look to models like electronic mail and the financial services industry for how distribution works, how spam control works, how circuit breakers work, all that kind of stuff. 
Well, Dick, I want to uh, thank you for uh, running a, a great panel there. Um, and I'm aware that uh, when I uh, introduced uh, Frank, I used the honorific of professor, but of course, uh, uh, Daphne, also a lecturer at Stanford Law School and uh, and, and Natalie with a, a PhD from Annenberg's uh, School of Communication. So uh, very grateful for all the expertise that's been uh, uh, brought to bear here today. Uh, very grateful to you all for uh, being part of this. Um, and can folks just do a quick shout out on where they you can be found on Twitter, et cetera, if people are looking for you after the fact? Sure. Uh, I'm at R.R. Reisman. I'm at Fukuyama Francis. I'm at Daphne HK. I'm at Marichelle PhD. Excellent. That's actually R. Reisman. Two R's, not three. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Two R's, not three. Well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, we will move on now, I think, to our, in our next uh, uh, conversation. That's it for this special episode from the October 7th Tech Policy Press event, Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.